morning. Uh, please grab your Bibles, and uh, as you do, I want to remind you that we're in the beginning of a study, really, of First Peter, and we find ourselves in a brand new section um, of study, and it's in verses 3 through 5. So that's going to be the aim of our study this, uh, this morning. Now, to start our thinking for this morning, actually, I want you to turn to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, just for a brief moment uh, here as you do that. Now, Paul and Silas are in Philippi. Philippi is located um, in kind of the northern part of where Greece is at, modern day. And they're in Philippi, and they had preached the gospel there. They had made many disciples, in particular this woman named Lydia. The Lord saved her, and she opened up her home, and the church was meeting in her home, and it was just an incredible time for the gospel. As they were preaching the gospel and then started a church, there were people that were made mad because they drove Paul and Silas, that is, drove a a demon out of the town fortune teller. So the authorities went after them because that was the moneymaker. You kind of ruined it. They thought. Verse um, 22 says that the crowd arose and they went up against them with these authorities and they ripped off the robes there of Paul and Silas. And it says that they started beating them with rods. Verse 23. They struck them, it says, with many blows, just beating them with open fist and with rods. And they did this in a frenzy. Then in verse 24, it says they threw them into the inner prison. And so here they were beat up from this crazed mob, so angry at the fact that that they converted this fortune teller, the source of business in the town. And it says they put them into the inner prison. You say, well, what's the inner prison? Well, the inner prison was the most, um, I guess you could say, secure part of the prison. So you had the prison, and then you had the inner part of the prison. And in this inner part of the prison, they would put the prisoner or prisoners in stocks, and, and they would spread their legs way out to a point that it would be uncomfortable not only to be there, but even to try to escape. The stocks were shackles designed to put immense pain and cramping in the legs as they spread them out as far as possible. And they were really doing all of that to basically um, let them know that they were literally probably hours away from execution. They were just going to stay there in their misery until their execution. Just a painful way to to wait to die. And it was filled with all this drama and you could only imagine and maybe with you, so many thoughts would be racing through your mind and maybe you would be thinking about your family and will I get a chance to say goodbye to my wife and kiss her and, and, and the kids and give them one last hug and an encouragement and all of that. And so it wasn't just physical uh, suffering and physical pressure and struggle that they were going through, but even emotional pressure that was being put on them as they knew they did nothing wrong but just simply do what the Lord called them to do. Just intense, dramatic, immediate, and you have all the authorities against you and you have this physical pressure and this emotional pressure. Now with that, let's pick it up in verse 25. See it there. Listen to this. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing. Singing hymns of praise to God. Now, if you were on the outside and you heard this, you might be saying, 
Hey, who's in there having such a good time? What's going on in there? You know how I know that people were wondering, probably be doing that? Because actually, look at what it says. And the prisoners were listening to them. I love it. They're praying and they're singing. It doesn't even say they're preaching. It says they were listening to them. What, would, what could they possibly be singing about? Well, everything that had to do with the Lord. I mean, maybe, maybe there were psalms that they were singing. I don't know, but they were jazzed. He said, these guys are crazy. Yeah, that's probably what so many of them thought. For sure what the prisoner guards thought. You say, are Paul and Silas aware that God is going to get them out of this situation? No, they have no idea. But what I want you to see is this is their immediate reaction to suffering and pain and difficulty that's in their face. Their immediate reaction is prayer and praise. The reason why I wanted us to go there because that is literally the very picture that Peter gives us in 1 Peter 3, chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. That is our picture. Praise when it seems absurd to praise. Joy and song and praise and worship right in the face of intense suffering. Who could do that? Have you ever wondered that? Have you ever thought that? I, 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 maybe it's because I have it's such a crazy, weird imagination of things. But you know, you wonder, what would you be like if you were in intense, like, suffering and pain like that, and that would, you would hope, right, that your response would be, oh, that I would sing and praise the Lord. And I've often thought, I just know the Lord is going to give me grace for that. I know it. I just know it. That's our picture. Now, you remember what this epistle is all about. Now, Peter, right, he writes it this, this very letter to encourage them because these Christians in these churches are facing incredible suffering, unbelievable suffering, and they are in an unbelievable pain and pressure. And he says, you guys need to grab a hold of the true grace. Make sure that when you suffer, grab a hold of the true grace. You'll notice that all throughout these five chapters, he doesn't do what some people would think that we that they should do. He doesn't say, "Hey, you need to pray to get that you get out of this." He never says that. He just says, "Listen, it's going to be hard, so just stand and um, make sure you're standing on the true grace." Shouldn't you pray that God would just kind of take you, whoosh, whisk you out of this here? Woo, you know, take us, get us out of this. Put a little bubble around us so that we're, so that everything is always happy and never conflict and never bad times, always good times. You don't see that in First Peter. It's not even a solution at all. It's just incredible. You guys need to grab hold of the true grace. You need to stand in it. How? Well, he says, here's how you do it, okay? First, think about the fact that as Christians, you are the chosen. That's verses 1 and 2. That's the first thing you do. Think about that. Now, and again, that might seem weird to you. Maybe before these last handful of weeks, you've not thought to yourself, meditate on election? But that's the controversial topic that we're not supposed to really talk about or think about. No, actually, he says, no, you need to think deeply about that so that you can face life in the proper and right way. But then secondly, think about all that you have in becoming a Christian. What you have in Christ is the key to handling whatever suffering comes your way. I'll never forget this is indelible to me, the letter that I received from T.R. Piper just weeks before going to give birth to her baby girl. 
you see, Tierra was told she would most likely die if she had this baby. And the reason, there was an undetected heart problem she had all her life, and she just didn't know. And the pregnancy kind of brought it forth to light. And so she wrote a letter to a group of girls she was discipling and sent it to me. And since this group was also meeting with the group of guys that I was discipling, we would meet and then we would break off. The girls would go their way and the boys would go their way and, and so forth. She asked me to read this letter to the group. Tierra was um, barely over 20 years old. And so she wanted me to read this letter, and I did. And as I'm reading it, most of it was spent doing two things. First, she wanted to encourage the girls and everybody else. But you really want to encourage, hey, keep serving the Lord and growing in the Lord. But the second thing, it was just full of praise to God. Full of praise to God. Worship. Tierra had little baby Faye and then she died. Faye will never know her mom. But she has come to know her mom's face. A trust and praise for God in the midst of unbelievable suffering. How? Because she understood what she had in her salvation. What did she have? An inheritance. So we're talking about here a response to suffering. Now, beloved, this is so important for us. Jesus told us in John 15, you're going to have struggle. You live the Christian life, you're going to have struggle. The world will hate us. Okay, Paul in 2 Timothy 3.12, all those who desire to live godly will be persecuted. How can you handle suffering then? Consider what you have in your salvation. But especially this, that it is an inheritance. That it is an inheritance. And then spend time praising God for it. Now, what I want us to do is take a look at our text. So we're here in 1 Peter chapter 1. And let me read verses 3 through 5 for you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now the key word in this study is there in verse 4, and it is the word inheritance. We'll get to that, but I want to start in verse 3 here. This is a doxology here in verse 3. Notice he says, blessed be the God and Father. That phrase right there introduces us to a doxology. A doxology is just simply, throughout the Bible, statements of praise. Anytime you run into these statements of praise, it's doxology. The word dox um, in the Bible is glory or to praise or to worship, to glorify. That is to... Speak out, logos, we get the word logos from, to speak out, to have words of praise. Now, this is a very common Jewish way of talking. Blessed be God. It's all over the Old Testament. You remember Melchizedek in Genesis 14 with Abraham, and he says, blessed be God most high, right? So this is very common. The Jews did this. The word blessed means to, uh, to speak well to a person. Eula 
Gaitos is the word in Greek to speak well of a person. To desire well can even also mean to wish well, to give your well wishes. You ever do that with a person? You say, when you're writing to them, I wish you well. I wish you well. So when we say blessed be God, we mean speak well of God, wish well for Him. Now God is, is, is good, so it will always be well for God, but the bless Him, when we say bless Him, it means we confess that. We admit that. That is that He is the source of all of that, of all that is well. Okay? That's what, we, what it means when, it's, when we bless God. We're basically confessing that. Lord, you are the source of all that is well, of all that is good. Now, there's another thing. I want you to see that this phrase is actually missing a verb. This is a phrase without a verb. And the, and the, the translators insert a be verb in there. Right? So it says, blessed be the God and Father. You know, in fact, it's funny because I, I, I got started reading in the Greek text this week, and I, that, I, did that, that I noticed that. It kind of stood out to me. I wonder, well, why is it that way? Well, it kind of it was implied it was in, the, in the way it was written. It's not in the text. It literally says, bless God. Do it. Okay? Praise Him. The Greek says, Blessed the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's, I guess, if you wanted to give it the wooden, real literal translation, that would be it. Now, it sort of combines two things when, when it does this. It's a call to praise Him, it is, and it's an expression of that praise. Okay, So it's not only a call to praise Him, it's an expression of that praise. In other words... You could sort of see it as an imperative, hey, bless him. But you can also see it in, the, in more the indicative way, that is, th- this is the expression of it. Now, what does that mean? Let me give you the sense of it. It's as though Peter is saying, hey, get your eyes up right now. Get them up right now. Hey, life's hard for you. Get your eyes up right now. You're, you're, you're way too horizontally focused. That's what he's saying. Up, not out. In fact, let me say it a different way. Get them up so that when you get them out, you're looking at life the right way. Understand that? This is helpful. Make, he's saying, make this circumstance the reason for you to praise him. See? And like I said, it is a very Jewish way of talking. Bless him, praise him, lift him up. Here you guys are scattered, you're aliens and you're suffering, and I want you to praise God. Why? Because it, this is a, a call to worship. Why? Well, you're aliens. I mean, because you don't belong here. Any troubles you have from this world has to have that kind of perspective, right? It's so good for us to remind ourselves, not our home. Not our home. Okay? But there's another thought that Peter just builds right into, and it's incredible. Verses 1 through 9. Verses, by the way, verses 3 through 9 is one continuous sentence. It's fascinating to me. But verses 1 through 9 are one ginormous thought about salvation. The topic is our salvation. And again, so helpful to think about how to handle suffering. First place you should go is think about your salvation. Stop thinking practically. That's our first go-to. You say, well, but but how will the bills and all that get paid? How How will life work and everything? Hey, we'll get there. But the first thought has got to be about your salvation. Here's the next thought. Look past your troubles 
to your inheritance. Now, verse 4, I mentioned to you that the key idea here is to obtain an inheritance. That's what he says. The Greek word kleronomia, again, a Jewish thought about inheritance. The Jews always talked about inheritance, didn't they? The land and what was coming to them. Now, the idea isn't some kind of title promised to you, you know, that inheritance that way. Listen very carefully. But an actual possession of something now. Now. And in a moment, I'm going to show you that it really does cover the range of what you have now or what you have because of something in the past, what you have now and what you have in the future. It covers all of that. Inheritance. In other words, not just future where we have to wait for the future to cash in, but present where we can experience the inheritance blessing right now. Fully in heaven. Why worship God in suffering and trouble? Because we have an inheritance. That's why. Now, if this is an Old Testament thought, then let's do some thinking here. What's the idea of inheritance from the Old Testament? We should think about that. We should know about that, right? Let me give you some uh, thoughts to hang your, some hooks to hang your thoughts on. Deuteronomy 15.4. There will be no poor among you since the Lord will surely bless you in the land which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance to possess. Okay? So, here is the Lord and he has brought them out of Egypt. He has redeemed them. He's used Moses and he says why he did it. To give you an inheritance, to possess an inheritance. The Lord promised Israel a land to possess as an inheritance. Now, who does it belong to? Any Jewish person. Any person that was a part of the, you know, the Jewish tribes. And in Joshua, they divided it up. You remember this? And they... And so you had these 11 tribes that possessed the land and Joseph was divided into two tribes and Levi wasn't given the land as a possession. You remember that? Hold on to that thought. We'll come back to that thought. It's so Old Testament inheritance. Uh, had to do with physical people, with a physical land. Remember Genesis 15? Genesis 15, when the Lord um, promised Abraham in the future they would be given land, he says, the land is going to be given to your descendants. You remember that? And so um, the Lord makes a covenant with um, Abraham there. That's the one where he walks in between. Abraham's kind of in this kind of a sleepy state, but everything is crystal clear to him. And the Lord walks through the the offerings there. And he makes a covenant with Abraham about, about that very thing. And he says, it's going to happen, Abraham. And it did. So then what Peter says is, guys, you remember, you remember this? I mean, some of you guys are Jewish Christians. He says to them. But just like there was a physical inheritance, Peter says, God has promised a spiritual inheritance. Just like with Israel, you know how they got the inheritance, but, but, a, but a promise for something more permanent was there. Get this. With Christians in the church, there is a spiritual inheritance for both the now and for something in the future. So what Peter is saying is for now, you've got to go through trial. You got to go through suffering. You have to go through struggle. You say, but don't you know the kind of struggle that I have faced? Well, no, maybe not exactly. I do, but Jesus does. 
He knows. And that's why in Hebrews 12, consider him who has endured with you know, such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary in losing heart. Whatever it is you're going through, he says, consider Jesus and what he went through. Why? So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And then he says this, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. However bad it is, it isn't that. Why does God allow us to go through so much pain and struggle here when we have this inheritance? I'll let the writer of Hebrews tell you. Hebrews 13, verses 14. Or verse 14. For here we do not have a lasting city. Here. It's it's almost like he's extending his arm out and saying, for here, look at it all, here. Here we don't have a lasting city. But we are seeking the city which is to come. I mean, we, look at that. We seek something that we have. You see that? Watch this. So in Hebrews 13, he says, the very next verse, through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That's how you do it. You see, this is not my home. Life's hard. You've got to tell yourself, remind yourself, not my home, but I have an inheritance. Keep seeking it. What do I do while I'm seeking it? Praise God. And so our inheritance is connected to the reason why we praise God. Why we worship Him. And so Peter says, you're in struggle. Think about your salvation. Think about your spiritual inheritance. Now, you know how inheritance goes, a little bit of how this goes. I mean, but think about how it works for future royalty, all right? I want you to think just for a moment. Let's use a wild imagination and pretend that you were your royalty of some kind. Maybe your prince, princess, king, queen in in, in the future here, okay? And you're born with an inheritance... Can that person who is future royalty, can he exercise it fully yet? No, right? What does he got to wait for? It's promised, but he doesn't get it yet. Does he have some wealth that's coming his way? Sure. Does he have... While he's growing up, even. Is there wealth for him while he grows up? Or does he have to just always look at it way over there? No, there's wealth for him growing up. He's just not tapping into all of it. When does he get it? (laughs) When dad dies. Now, in the meantime, what's his life like? Not a bad life, right? I mean, he spends it learning all about his inheritance to come. And, and, you know, so he has to, you know, understand it so that when, you know, he comes into it, he can use it the right way. And maybe he's a little bit clumsy about things. And maybe there are things that he just doesn't know. And so he, he just has to grow. How should he live his life then in the meantime? Here it is. Consistent with his inheritance to come. This is why, to you and me, it is strikingly bad when we know a person is to receive a royal inheritance, but they live such terrible lives, right? We look at that and say, but that's not consistent. Wait a minute. You're the one that's supposed to be responsible with all that wealth when you get the crown or whatever. It's a picture. That's our picture, beloved. We have it, but not fully. And you know, so many of us live like we're not royalty. If you belong to him, you are spiritually royal. We live like our future is something ho-hum and poor and insignificant. You know, I mean, you know why you do? I think it's because you don't understand your inheritance. 
And what Peter has to say here is no different really than what Paul said in Colossians 3, in chapter 2, verse 2, having been knit together in love, attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself. Okay, what is our wealth? It is understanding what we have in Christ. Now watch this. What is in Christ? Verse 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You have all the treasures if you have Christ. So watch this. Then you get the Colossians 3. Therefore. You've, You've got it all, he says. Therefore. In light of the fact that you've got it all. Therefore. If you have been raised up with Christ, because you have Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Same thing in Matthew 6. Matthew 6, remember that? Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and all his, and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Quit getting your... What's the problem? Your eyes are on... Such poor substitutes. Things that really are such small potatoes. John Piper has made a, quite a statement about this kind of thing in some very many of the books that he has written. But Seeking and Savoring Christ, that was, a, that was one that where he really makes the point. The Pleasures of God, he wrote that book, that makes the point there. But it is this, that quite often we get ourselves enamored with such small, tiny pleasures of paupers that make no sense. And we follow after the lusts of our heart, after things on this earth. Such small pleasures we set our eyes on. when we have the riches of heaven. We settle for eating, like in Luke 15, the husks and the pods with the, you know, pigs. When we have the banquet that he he has given us in the inheritance that we have. Our problem, our minds are on this puny earth. This, this poor, impoverished earth. We value it. I mean, we love it too much. We treasure it. And why do that when we have such an inheritance? That's the point of the prodigal son in Luke 15. That's what it means when it says, he came to his senses. In other words, my inheritance isn't the money dad gave me. It's wherever dad is. That's the point. I gotta get back to dad. I understand now. He was the key to everything. That's my inheritance. It's my dad. My dad's my inheritance. And so what Peter is saying then is this, I want you to worship and praise God for your inheritance as you stare down your pain and suffering in life. That's what I want you to do. You say, if, if, if only I could know what my inheritance is. Well, I've got good news for you. Peter tells us. So look at verse 5. All right, here we go. He says, protected for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Our inheritance is what our salvation is connected to, right? It is, it is our salvation. And it is our salvation that the Lord will give us at the end. What end? When he comes back or when we get to heaven, see? Whichever one is your end. But actually the words last time tells us that the end he's talking about is the time when we get a glorified body and reign with Jesus here on this very earth. Notice, our inheritance is our salvation. He said, but I thought I, I, I already was saved. You make it seem like salvation is something I get at the end, but 
Are you saying that I'm not there yet? The salvation he's talking about here is from the presence of sin forever, from pain and suffering and trial and temptation and all the evil that there is. The Bible tells us that, this is a very important, the Bible tells us that salvation has three parts to it, and you need to know this if you're going to understand this. There are three ways to understanding salvation. There is a past element to it. That is that we were saved. And by that it means that we were saved from the penalty of sin. There, that is that past element, the, the past tense of Colossians 2.13, having forgiven us all our transgressions, all of them done in the past. You're a Christian, it happened. You don't have to get more saved. You just are saved. First John 2.12, your sins have been forgiven. Past tense. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been what? Saved. It happened. It's done. It is finished. There's also a sense in which salvation is present. Being saved. Being saved. And this is where we experience our salvation daily. Philippians 2.12, working it out, it says. Work out your salvation. Remember that? That's what it means by that. 1 John 1.9, you confess your sins, he is faithful to forgive them. In other words, there is the experience of the constant cleansing. Have you ever wondered that? Wait a minute, why do I go seeking forgiveness for my sins when it says my sins are already forgiven? Because it's both. They're already forgiven, and you seek the Lord to forgive them. And what you're doing when you do that is to come back to that, that experience, to experience what it is that you already have in Christ. And so that has to do with being saved from the power of sin, and, and we sometimes call this sanctification. But salvation is also future. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, to wait for his son from heaven, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. There is a rescuing coming to rescue us from that. Literally a salvation coming. Romans 5, 9, and 10. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. We shall be saved by his life. That's future. So talking about the presence of sin finally being destroyed. Romans 13, 11, For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. He said, nearer? How about it already came? It did. But yet there's an aspect about salvation that is coming. We sometimes call that glorification. Final salvation. Perfection. So we have salvation in the past. So we have it, right? We have it in the past. We hold it in the present and we inherit it in the future. That's the way to understand it. Now I'll show you a few more thoughts from Hebrews. In fact, turn there for just a moment. We're kind of working this thing up. Um, that's why I only plan to get into verse 3 today. So, all right. Have rest, peace, exhale, it's all good. Working our way through it. Now look at chapter 1, verse 14. Angels, ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. Notice the future tense. It's coming and it's something we inherit. It's an inheritance. Go over to chapter 9, end of verse 15. Those who have been called may receive the promise of of the eternal inheritance. <clears throat> it's an eternal inheritance and it is something that is promised. It hasn't happened yet and it's connected to our salvation. Look at verse 28. Christ also having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. There is a salvation that has to do with the end. 
And this salvation is an inheritance that Jesus will return to give us Christians. So what is Peter saying? He's essentially saying, praise God for the future. Praise Him now for a future reality that will happen. By the way, for those of you that maybe have been taught that uh, you can lose your salvation, that doesn't jive with this. Because you'd have to be saying that you might get. And that's not encouraging. That doesn't give anybody, doesn't make any sense later on in, in verse 3 to call Jesus Christ our living hope if he might be your living hope if you hold on to your salvation. It's not what this, it's not what this is teaching. Praise God for the future. Why? There's, there, there's, there's an inheritance coming, an eternal inheritance. Acts 26.18 To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. That's the focus of our salvation. Ephesians 1.11 In him also we have obtained an inheritance. Oh, you say, wait a minute, you said it's coming. Well, we have it too. So you have it? That's right. Just like the young man that's born to the king has that inheritance. Can't cash it in yet, but he has it. But verse 14 the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. We have it, but in another sense, we have it as a promise. The Holy Spirit is the pledge. In the Greek, it's the word arabone that I'm going to make a little more of a mention later on. This is, um, it sometimes is talked about as the seal, but it's also mostly referred to as an engagement ring. Holy Spirit is our engagement ring. God doesn't back down on his promises. Israel had a physical inheritance and it said the 11 tribes all took part of that inheritance. It was all theirs. Watch this. Let's make a connection to the old... Testament, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, that actually helps us find ourselves right in the Old Testament as believers with the inheritance. Moses said, and Joshua repeated it in Joshua 13.33, listen, but to the tribe of Levi, Moses did not give an inheritance the Lord, the God of Israel, is their inheritance as he had promised to them. Only one tribe didn't have an inheritance, Levi. Why? Because they were the Lord's servants, the Lord's priests, right? No physical inheritance, just a spiritual one, okay? The Lord himself is their inheritance. And of course, at the highest place spiritually, that's what every believer in the Old Testament would say. That's the inheritance that mattered the most. That's why uh, Psalm 16.5, for example, the Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. In other words, it's a beautiful heritage. It's a beautiful inheritance because it's the Lord himself. Same thing in Psalm seventy three twenty five. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, it is there nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. My inheritance. And in this very letter that we're studying, First Peter says in chapter 2 that every believer is a priest with a holy priesthood. Here's the connection. Here's how we see ourselves in the Old Testament. Verse 9, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. In other words, we're like Levi. 
God himself is our inheritance. Limitations 3.24, the Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I have opened him. Now, at salvation, the triune God became our inheritance. Did you know that? The triune God. The Bible says the triune God became our inheritance. We inherited God. God himself is our portion. God himself is our inheritance. Not only that, we inherit Jesus Christ. Romans 8.17, right? Where it says that we are fellow heirs with Christ. And if you're an heir, that means you have what? An inheritance. And it says that we actually are fellow heirs with Christ. That is inheriting Christ himself. And then in Ephesians 1.14, heirs with the Holy Spirit. And that's that air bond that I was talking about um, that means engagement ring. We have him, John 14, Jesus said, I will send the Holy Spirit. He will be in you. Why? As a possession to guarantee the future possession. That's an incredible thought. All right, let's go back to First Peter 1.3. We're just like barely scratching the surface here as we kind of work our way into this here. Blessed be the God and Father. This is Jewish. The Jews, the Jews bless God for two things, okay? They bless God for creation and they bless God for redemption. And it's, you can see this. Read the Psalms, and you'll see it over and over and over. They bless God. Oh, He's created, and He's made the heavens and the earth. And you'll see this all the time, talking this way. And then it'll also talk about how, and He has redeemed us. Psalm, I think it's 89, speaks of this very thing. Creation, redemption. And it makes sense then that Peter would turn that into a Christian blessing for the church. You say, how come? John chapter 1 and Ephesians 4 connects, it paints the picture that salvation is like creation. Listen to Ephesians 4.24, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. That's how he describes salvation. Our salvation is like creation, but it's also like, obviously, the redemption of Israel out of Egypt. That word redemption is used over and over and over in the New Testament to describe salvation. And so Peter says, blessed be God. We bless God just like the Old Testament, but now we bless him for something that is connected to a spiritual creation and a spiritual redemption. So the call is to worship God. Why? For our inheritance. Now here's how you get through suffering and struggle and pain. You set your mind to praise God. To get us there, Peter gives us five points on inheritance that increase worship. Five things that you need to know about our inheritance. Let's look at the first one this morning and the next Lord's Day. We'll get to the rest here. And we're just going to touch on this one here. The last few minutes we have. First of all, the substance of our inheritance. The substance of our inheritance. Now, what is, verse 3, the substance of our inheritance? What does it amount to? God himself. It not only comes from God, it is God himself. We're talking about getting God. What's so wonderful about salvation. What's wonderful about it is that salvation, you get God. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice God's title here, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
In the Old Testament, the blessing was about God, the Creator, God, the Redeemer. In the New Testament, the blessing is God, the Father of Jesus Christ, the Lord. Ephesians 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the New Testament uh, way of saying it. And he just says it over and over. Now why? Why? Why that as our focus of praise? I want you to think about it. That's our call to worship in the midst of suffering. Praise God who is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what you should be focusing on. You remember in John 4, the woman at the well made a big deal about the Father's worshiping at that mountain. And Jesus said, listen, yes, the call is for you to worship the Father. But you have the wrong Father. You don't understand God as Father. He tells her, worship the Father in spirit and truth. In other words, find out what's true about the Father. What is true about the Father? What Jesus was saying was, listen, worship Him as the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what are we talking about when it says Father? Does it mean that God is the Father of all? All people are the Lord's children. Is that what it means? He's the Father. Everybody else is the children. No. If you look at the relationship between Jesus and God in the Gospels, what you see is He always called God Father. Only one time He he didn't, and that was when He quoted Psalm 22 on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See that? That's a relational break right there. The term father doesn't have to do with our relationship with God. It has to do with the relationship Jesus has with God. Often when a Christian prays, he will call God father, right? I mean, that's Matthew 6. I mean, Jesus told us to do that. Galatians 4, Abba Father, very endearing. But if you go to the Old Testament, by the way, no Jew would call God Father, right? We know that. Didn't happen. Why? Because there wasn't this personal side for them. It wasn't like that. Um, We get a clue, by the way, in Isaiah, remember chapter 9, Prince of Peace, Eternal Father, describing the Messiah to come? Okay? But here's the point. In the New Testament, there's a relationship focus that comes from the very relationship God the Father has with God God the Son. God the Father with God the Son. What does he mean by that? Same essence. I mean, I suppose the way we try to wrap our minds around this is to think about the hum- a human father to a human son. But it, is, is, but it isn't the, the same that way even, is it? Same essence. You know, it's sort of what we mean when we say, well, you, you look like your father. You know, um, we're saying that you have traits that make it clear that you're connected with that person in some unique way. There's an essence that you both share. Now, if God the Father's essence is deity, is divine, that means that what Jesus is saying is that He is divine, right? He is God. John 10, 29, My Father who has given them 
to me is greater than all. And then Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Again, always the Father, the Father, the Father for Jesus. Remember what happened next? It says in verse 33, it says they wanted to kill him for blasphemy. Why? Because you being me, being a man, you being a man, make yourself out to be God. They got the message, but the problem is that they only see him as a what? As a man. Same thing earlier in John five seventeen. My father is working until now, and I myself am working. And in chapter 5, verse 18, it says they wanted to kill him because he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus never corrected that. Yeah, you're right. Yep, you got it. But that's not a problem. Unless it is a problem for you. Why would it be a problem? Because if God the Son has come down and you are in your sins, like John 8 says, but you're not doing anything about it, that's a problem. God is here. And He made you. And there's accountability, right? You see Jesus doing the same thing with his own men in John 17 when he prays all throughout the whole prayer. He's, he, he says about God being the Father. Matthew eleven twenty seven. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. This is a kind of relationship that no human has with The Father. Same essence. And I think the point is the intimacy. It's a unique relationship like no other. Now, we need to be clear. Jesus never makes his connection to God the Father in the same as our connection to God the Father. Making distinction here. The scripture does. In Matthew 6, you see, yeah, what about Matthew 6 when Jesus says to pray? Doesn't, I mean, doesn't he say our Father? Listen here. He doesn't say let us pray this way. Our Father who is in heaven. He doesn't say that. He says when you pray, pray this way, our Father in heaven. You pray this way. In other words, He is never going to mix with us that way. Hey, we're all together in this. Uh Uh-uh. No. He is our Father in a way that isn't the same as the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, same thing in John chapter 20. You can mark this down. Remember what Jesus tells Mary? Verse 17, I ascend to my Father and your Father. In my God and your God, he doesn't say our Father and our God. Sure would have been a lot simpler and easier way to talk, but that's because he was precise. He was being clear. He's my Father in a way that he's not your Father. He is Father to me in a way that isn't true for you. The substance of our inheritance is connected to whom? God who is the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is, by the way, Jesus' full name, folks. Lord Jesus Christ. That's the answer, by the way, to Philippians 2 when it says there is salvation found in no other name. You've got to have the full name. Lord Jesus Christ. That's why the people that kind of sing the name Jesus, Jesus, Jesus over as though that's His name is like the full name, right? Lord, the sovereign, Jesus, the divine who took on flesh as a human. Christ, the anointed Messiah King. That's our confession, isn't it? When we say, Lord, Jesus Christ, we confess all of those things. 
he is the sovereign, that he is incarnate. He came and took on flesh. He is Messiah, Savior, Messiah King. That's what happened at salvation. We confess that to follow with allegiance the sovereign one who came from heaven to take on flesh as a human in perfection without sin and after dying on the cross rose to be crowned the Messiah King. We follow that one. Notice one other word here and it is the word our. Our Lord Jesus Christ. This one is ours. That's the mystery of salvation. John 14, that he came to be not only over us, not only with us, but in us. That's incredible. John 17, knowing him, knowing him, knowing the Lord Jesus Christ in personal relationship, that is the substance of our inheritance. First John 3 says, when we see him, we will be like him. All that he is will come to us in fullness. So here's the message from Peter. That's why we should praise God and worship him because that's the substance of our inheritance. Bless God for that because he is our inheritance. I wanted to end with uh, the words of F.B. Meyer. 1800s. Meyer says, Our inheritance is God Himself, not the golden harps, not the sea of glass mingled with fire, not rest from pain and immunity from sorrow, not the blessed society of heaven. From all these, apart from God, we should at least turn away dissatisfied they are but the accessories and embodiments of something deeper more inward and rapturous the possession of God our inheritance begins here as a matter of right all God's nature is ours directly we are born into his family as a vast tract of country filled with woods and rivers and ore belongs to the air at the moment of birth. But as a matter of fact, we shall never occupy all, even when eternity is passing over us. The finite can never fully grasp the infinite. Yet from the very from the first moment of conversion, we may begin to enter on our inheritance. We commence by studying the inspired chart which maps out that inheritance and tells us what God is and what he is prepared to be to us. Next, we proceed to appropriate and make use of his attributes and properties for daily need. Then we become possessed of the indwelling spirit of God and who brings his very nature into ours. And so we come to possess God just in proportion as he possesses us. We inherit him as our portion up to the measure in which he inherits us. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. The Lord's portion is his people. Up, friends. You are living on a vast estate. Around you, on all hands, are God's love and grace and power and wisdom awaiting your use. Set yourselves to know and then to appropriate and enjoy. That's our inheritance. That's what we have. But i got four more points to tell you about what we have. I'm really excited about that. We'll get to it next Lord's Day. Father, we thank you for giving so much. We just long just know you more that way. No wonder it's going to take an eternity to really understand the things that we were just studying. It is amazing that we are filled to the fullness and yet you call us to be filled with you. 
it is amazing that he who has the Lord has, as it says in Colossians 2, all wisdom and the riches that are there in that. And yet you call us to seek you and to seek knowing you and to find our wisdom in you. It is a mystery that we can have everything and yet be called to seek that which we have. We thank you for Christ, Lord, and we just pray that um, as we dig deeper, Lord, that you would help us to get our eyes up rather than being so horizontally focused. This is the work, Lord, that you have to do in us. We pray for it in Jesus' name.